it's Chris. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You don't have to do any of that work. In addition, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to the Situation in the Story podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moore, a queer writer and educator living in Denver. I'm here to bring you the story behind the story. When I read a book that intrigues me, no matter the genre, I want to know more. Who is this writer? What challenges and mundanities led them to create something so profound? More than craft and publishing stories, I'm here for the in-between. The ways our various identities and intersectionalities inform our stories and make us who we are. The ways we transform barriers, borders, and boundaries into art. Happy autumn, everyone. Welcome back. Episode 2 of Season 2, Situation in the Story Podcast. Thank you for being here. Um, Autumn is my favorite season, and as it was approaching, I had the absolute honor to sit down and speak with Serena Prabasi about her memoir, The Coffee House Resistance. As I shared with her, my hope and faith in humanity has been at an all-time low, and then last week our brilliant and powerful justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away just weeks before the 2020 election so it's been difficult to have hope but when I think of Sabrina her life her story her writing our conversation some semblance of faith in the human race and our ability as a collective to affect change begins to resurface in me she's not just a US citizen she's a global citizen Reading her work and talking with her was the best civics lesson I've had in a long time. I hope you'll buy her book. I hope you'll feel the same level of inspiration from our conversation that I did. And I hope that you'll go forth and make waves. We need it. And you, now more than ever. Today we discuss her memoir, described as part coming to America story, part lyrical memoir, and yet another part activist call to action. Coffeehouse Resistance, Brewing Hope in Desperate Times is timely, funny, and poignant. Her story weaves between Nepal, Ethiopia, and the United States. And when Prabasi and her husband moved from Ethiopia to New York City in 2011, they started a thriving coffee business, Booney Coffee. They grow their family, and they begin living their American dream. But after the 2016 election... They were suddenly unsure about their new home. Listen in as we discuss motherhood, COVID-19 and its effects on small businesses like Boonie Coffee, uh, the political state of the nation, and more. If you have a moment, please drop over to patreon.com slash story to show support for these important conversations. For as little as five bucks a month, you can receive early ad-free access to episodes. I can't do this without you. Another simple, free way to support the show is by leaving a star rating, and more importantly, a short review on Apple Podcasts. It 
telling the masses what you think about our show. Thank you again. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Why do you write? I think, you know, that's it, it's a, a tough question, but an easy question, too. It's I write because I have to. I've, I've always written. As a child, I had a journal. I, you know, wrote my feelings. I wrote where, through my adolescence. You know, I just wrote as part of how I process emotions, information. And then for a long time, I also read a lot. So as a child, I was a big reader. And I didn't ever think that I was necessarily going to write for others. So writing was, before, it was much more of a personal thing. It was writing for mm -hmm. myself. Yeah, I started writing The Coffeehouse Resistance. Actually, I was working on a project of helping my dad write his memoir. Mm -hmm. And I started writing the very beginning the bits of my book while I was with him. <laughs> wow. Yeah. What, how long ago was that? So 2017, 18, I guess, you know, I had a lot of notes and other things jotted down for myself, but then the idea of actually working on it in, in sort of to create a book. So my book came out April, 2019 mm -hmm. and like, the year or two before then. Um, and my dad's book is coming out October 6th in print and it's already out in the ebook. Mm -hmm. Coffee, the coffee house resistance is a memoir. Uh, the, the kind of subtitle is brewing hope in desperate times. Can you talk a little bit, uh, like how would you describe it for those who haven't read it yet? Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, I joke that it's a book that has like 10 themes. So <laughs> you could approach it from different angles. You could approach it because you love coffee or because you love travel, especially if you love Ethiopia. And you could also approach it as an immigrant or as somebody who's wanted or dreamed of starting a small business. So it's a book with a lot of different entry points. Mm -hmm. And it's also a book about political awakening, how somebody who's relatively non-political gets activated. It's also a book about, you know, finding and creating a new home for oneself. Mm. So there are lots of different entry points and lots of aspects. And I haven't even covered all of them. It's also a book about motherhood. Right. <laughs> so I hope that uh, different types of readers could connect with the book. Yeah. I, I mean, that's exactly how I would describe it. There's so many entry points and I could relate to more than one. So it was especially wonderful read for me. Um, but it you. was, yeah, thank you. It was obvious like pretty quickly, like within the first chapter that you're a woman who's deeply familiar with how geography informs privilege or lack thereof. Can you talk a bit about how like a sense of place kind of seems to push your memoir forward? Sure. You know, I, I grew up traveling and uh, I grew up in many different cultures, countries. I was born in the Netherlands because my dad was teaching there and my parents lived there. It was, you know, an accident of why would I be born in the Netherlands? Right. And, uh, <laughs> and it had nothing to do with me, which is mostly how we were born, right? It has nothing to do with us. We're yep. born where we're born. And my early childhood was in, in India, in China. My parents decided to move back to Nepal, a decision that I'm really grateful for as well, because it gave me a sense of, a sense of roots after having uh, spent so much time traveling, a sense of 
where we come from and uh, the ability to speak Nepali fluently and, you know, a lot of those things that I, I value now. But in each place, you know, as a child, you're a sponge. And so you soak up all these things that, uh, and you learn, you learn things that you don't even know that you're learning. Mm. And I feel like that served me well later in life. Um, I wrote about this in my book about how, like, you know, I feel like I'm a very adaptable person. You could drop me in the middle of, you know, any imagined circumstance and I could probably have a conversation and figure things out. Um, mm. And a lot of that is, you know, some of that is learning different languages, but a lot of that is also the nonverbal and learning how to pick up cues and learning that, you know, the meaning behind words. And so just, I think there's a, obviously there was a huge privilege in growing up like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, you know, I've lived in places and at different times of my life have been in the society that I'm in, in different places of privilege. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's also interesting to not, to not always be, feel stable in that mm. identity, that it changes depending on where I place myself. Yeah, which I, I feel like that's a huge kind of theme and part of the book too, that I really want to talk about a lot today. But the book jumps around a lot, right? Between times and places. How did you kind of decide how to structure this work? It was hard. I... I think the advice is you should always write linear. So write from the beginning to the end, and then later you can always move things around. That's not how the writing came to me. <laughs> it did not come linearly. And uh, so I wrote how the words came and then tried to figure out, you know, what the chronology should be. Um, there's definitely a chunk of the book that takes place in Ethiopia. There's also very early childhood memories. Most of them are at the beginning. So... Mm -hmm. There is a chronology in the book of time, but it's not it's not always linear. And my journey and most of our journeys are not linear, right? Uh, and our lives are not linear. So in and some memory, sense, yeah, memory <laughs> definitely is not linear. Yeah. So in some sense, like you kind of have to go with it a little bit. Like maybe, obviously, I don't read the book as a as a new reader, but right. maybe you need to trust a little bit, especially in the beginning. You know, I've had people say to me, I had no idea that that's where the book was going. Same. Um, yes, I feel right? that way. Yeah. <laughs> like they're really surprised at the maybe the final third of the book. Like, oh, that's where this book is yeah, going. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> and so it's also a book that maybe isn't as cut and dry about what the form that it takes. Right. Mm -hmm. Or is it too, it's too political to be literature? It's too literary to be just political you know it's it's a little bit of it's memoir but then so it I think that um you know I'm somebody that doesn't like boundaries very much mm -hmm. so <laughs> maybe that shows up in the book yeah I love that I I love having conversations about you know the respective linearity of time or not especially in memoir and yeah somebody recently said that memory Memory's not linear. Story's not linear. And that's kind of a very like Western way to tell stories almost. So I appreciated that structure. So you were saying earlier how different places call for kind of different politics and roles. And I was taken by the evolution of, of 
your thinking on America <laughs> and basically, you know, before you emigrated, how did you view the American dream? Because it, by the end, it was a pretty stark contrast, I'm assuming. So before you got here, like, how did you, what, what was your perception? What, one of my, like, one of my clearest memories is actually of arriving in New York the first time. I was 18. Uh -huh. And I remember, you know, it's such a cliche, but it was, it was true to me. And at that time of New York, when I was 18, uh, before Uber, uh, <laughs> it was the yellow cabs and the, the New York walk and the way people walked. And I was there for the first time, but I recognized it. I knew it from the movies. You know, I had seen it so many times. This, yeah. So I felt I, it was such an exciting time for me, honestly. But very even then and i write about this moment where i saw a man reach into a garbage can and pick out a slice of pizza mm -hmm. and he ate it and i just stared i mean i stared at the whole thing and it like it was almost like i couldn't really understand what was happening right in front of me because it didn't fit into my idea yeah. uh, this city and this country. And so, you know, I'd say, you know, I did have a lot of exposure because I grew up traveling. I studied in international schools. I had a lot of exposure to American people, American teachers. But my first time actually coming here as a student, um, I came here to do my undergrad um, on a scholarship. And it was, it was, there were so many contradictions, right, from my idea of America. And and honestly, if I were to write the book today, it would be a very different book, just because in the last four years, how much more has been revealed. And I didn't think I was being naive or idealistic when I wrote the book, but I would probably write it differently today. Yeah. I mean, like, like I said, you can see towards the end of the book um, in the 2016 election and whatnot, that you're starting to realize, okay, this is, this is not the place maybe that I thought it was. And yeah, I was thinking about how much has happened just in the last year, even. Yes. And how, yeah. How different, how different the situation is now, but your I feel like your book is definitely a political memoir. And like, even though I had read the blurb on the back of the book and it mentions the election, I wasn't expecting it to be so specifically about, kind of America under Trump. So I want to talk a bit about what your political life looks like as we approach the 2020 election and the coffee house. Is Booney Coffee still a coffee house of the resistance? Yeah, you know, the title too, when we came up with the title, it seemed like such a great title. But at times during this, especially like the last year or two, well, the book's only been out a little bit over a year, but I've been obviously working on it longer. I wondered whether the title sort of pigeonholed the book a bit too much, uh, the cover and the title. But so Bunny Coffee is, you know, it's still, <laughs> I'd say pre-pandemic, it was a thriving, growing, expanding business, but the business of coffee, but really its identity was about people, a place for people to gather. Right. And uh, really drawing on this older tradition of coffee houses and the history of coffee houses as being sort of rabble rousing places, mm -hmm. places, of, you know, places that are irreverent and uh, questioning and with an edge. And so we really embraced that, although I write in the book in the beginning, it was a sort of scary thing to do. But as 
it went on, it, it really became part of the identity. And it's been tough. Right now is a tough time, as you know, for um, almost all small businesses, and especially a business that has made its identity about people gathering and gathering in person. But there are still, you know, there are opportunities to talk about issues. We're still connected to issues in the neighborhood, looking for ways that we can support. But it does, you know, right now, it does raise a question of how do you, do you just have to hold some space and say, okay, when we can gather again, we'll still be here. Yeah. You know, and how do we keep ourselves going until then? And for myself personally, you know, uh, a lot of the organizing is happening online right now. And, you know, I, I do take part in different aspects of those. Yeah, New York politics is always interesting. The more you yeah. delve into it, the more you find out. Um, yeah. So, yeah, but but like like for a lot of people, it's been a time that we are the world just seems upside down. Yeah, I want to read a little excerpt from the the shadows chapter. So you write, um, while so much of our attention is on Donald Trump, amplifying his agenda or resisting it, he is merely the symptom of a disease that is eating this country up from the inside. The roots of the disease are deep and seemingly unchangeable and reside in millions of hearts and minds. A country built on theft, looting, rape, and war, unacknowledged and unatoned for. This history cannot rest in the past, so it now consumes our present. And it will steal our future, too, unless we can deal with it, no matter how ugly it may be and how much pain we might feel. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> how articulate, and I agree wholeheartedly, but when I think of how to get this done, I come up empty. So I'm just kind of wondering, do you think, do you think it's something that can change from within the current system or is revolution kind of a requirement here? I'm thinking of the millions of hearts and minds who are still clinging so tightly to their hatred and fear and my family included and how those relationships have changed for me over the past year. And I just, if I can't get to my family members, you know what, you know, like how, how are we going to affect change? What are you thinking about that? Yeah. I mean, these are really big and difficult questions. I think for me, one of the things that I have drawn inspiration and hope from in sometimes when it's really hard to find the hope actually these days is is the movement for racial justice mm. and i think having people out in the streets and i know that you know the coverage of that and the slants on that are really different depending on where you're coming from politically mm. but the fact that people are out on the streets and that it's not just one type of person, right? There's different age groups. There's, uh, it's been pretty multiracial, the outpouring of people that are demanding a different future and a different present for this country. So I think there is definitely, you know, it's a time of disruption and there are opportunities in that disruption. And there's also a lot of pain. And, you know, as you know, New York City was very hard hit um, by COVID. It also, showed, you know, that a city that calls itself certain things, the divisions and the inequalities are so strong here too. And the like who who pays the price? And when you look at the death toll and, and who is getting sick and who is dying in New York and now who's getting evicted 
uh, all of that, it, it paints a very unjust picture. On the other hand, it's, I feel like it's, it's clearer than ever. I think because I, I going back to the question you asked me earlier about, you know, how did I see America before, before mm -hmm. I moved here? I think that that Hollywood impression of America that so many of us outside of this country grew up with, that's not the impression that a lot of people are growing up with now, even mm -hmm. in other countries, right? right? So in a way that that cover or that the, the mask is off. And I think that's really important. I think you can't get past it without getting through it, right? Like there's no easy way. So whether it's whether it will be some sort of truth and reconciliation commission like in South Africa or whether it will be some other American form of something will have to happen uh, before we can get to the other side. And I think it's a long way. I was talking with my father recently and he was an activist in the 60s and 70s. And he, you know, I asked him a similar question and he's, he, his reply was, well, you know, it's the struggle. The struggle has to continue. It's not like there's not a neat before and after or a, a good and evil. It's the struggle has to continue and we have to continue to find hope and inspiration and energy uh, to continue that struggle for a more just society. And I think, you know, when you live in the U.S. right now, so much of the conversation is about the president of the United States. But it's really happening globally. You know, there's, there's, it's, it's a very depressing moment mm -hmm. globally in terms of leadership across the world. And um, it's also maybe that flashpoint where there is, hopefully there will be, you know, I still, I always tend to see the glass half full. So I don't know how to live without optimism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I have to find it somewhere. Um, but right now I'm finding it among the, the activists and the people, the organizers and people who are working so hard and um, being painfully honest about the reality in this country. Yeah. Um, I remember early, kind of earlier on in the book when you realize um, that so many Americans die without health care and you were just so almost like hurt by that the fact that like the lack of value that we place on that as a human right here I think it's important that we read these stories and understand you know <laughs> your before picture of America and then your after picture it's like it, and like you said the mask is off now if Trump hadn't been elected i don't know that so much would have been revealed the way that it is not that i'm yeah. thankful that he was elected or anything but it's like before we can deal with it we have to name it you know what i mean yeah and i think that's my that's my um caution really to people who are so consumed by him uh -huh. and being against him it's for me it's really what are you for and mm -hmm. Uh, to be equally passionate and work equally hard for what we're for. Yeah. And to be able to describe that world, to be able to imagine a world that is one that we would be proud to live in, a country that we would be proud to live in, that, that where we feel, or a neighborhood that we would be proud to, you know, it yeah. could start anywhere. And I think that that so much of our energy is 
on what we're against, that it feels like a missed opportunity to actually paint a very clear picture of what we're for. Right. Towards the end of the book, the last chapter, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez comes into the picture. And um, I can't imagine how it must have felt to volunteer with her campaign. I'm embarrassed to say I hadn't really heard about her until she won that primary and, you know, ousted the firmly entrenched incumbent. But did that, how did that feel, basically? <laughs> Was that kind of the the America that you wanted to come be a part of? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, where the underdog can win. Yeah. You know, that's that's what she was, you know, and and there are so many, right? Like, I think that she's a great example. And I've talked to so many young women in just even just in New York who are running for office or are politically active or are doing things that they wouldn't see themselves doing. Mm -hmm. uh, because of her, because of the amount of attention and limelight and, and, you know, which is a huge burden, I'm sure for her, uh, to have that level of attention. But yeah, I think that is, that is, and I think, you know, even before she was famous and when we, you know, when it was just a very little volunteer effort, there was something about a voice that can cut through a lot of the blah, 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 you know, like <laughs> the political speak. Yeah. And just say say what you mean and mean what you say and actually get people to believe you, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I mean, that's what I heard in her voice at, yeah. at the very beginning, you know? So that, I remember feeling very excited by that, feeling yeah. very inspired by that, saying, you know, well, that's, I want to be a part of this. And right. the, the, the idea that she might win was like so far off, but just even being able to support uh, candidates like that, that this is the type of person that should be running. You know, right. this, these are the people that should be, uh, we should be hearing from. Yeah. And, um, and I mean, I should. honestly feel like that every time I watch the news, I, I, I put on main, like sort of the mainstream cable news only once in a while, because honestly, I have better mental health without it. Yeah. But when I do, it's, I'm always like, so frustrated by the people they pick to interview or who's talking and mm -hmm. what you know why are you talking i'd much rather hear from just people <laughs> i'd much right. rather hear from people who are living this experience rather than people who are analyzing this experience from you know four thousand feet away that have never had this experience but right. you know have the opportunity are given so many opportunities to talk about things that they have no clue about. Right. So to me, uh, that has, you know, her Alexandria's win and then the continuing movement in New York has, has been really an inspiration. And it's been one of those, one of those brighter spots, you know, in, in a very difficult time in the last, mm -hmm. um, Six months have been, you know, just who would have thought, but yeah. here we are. Unprecedented. So much of it. Earlier, we were talking about people being in the streets and the protests and the uprising for racial equality and justice. And it's interesting to think about how that might not have happened without a pandemic. I mean, as long as I've been around, which 35 years, you know. You always want, like, you see just millions of people in the streets overseas um, in Europe and Asia and whatnot. And 
you know, we'll maybe do it on the weekend here in the U.S. Like, we can't afford to protest, you know what I mean? And I think I think that's by design. Of course, there's so much bad coming out of Trump and the pandemic. But again, I think there's so much good that's also able to happen now because of these things. Do you know how they're handling the pandemic kind of in your, in, well, you call Nepal home, right? Yeah, home is complicated. Right. You know, <laughs> Washington Heights is home. Right. Uh, Nepal is home. Ethiopia is home too. So homes. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say... You, you know, a lot of generally countries with much fewer resources are doing a pretty good job, you know, as it's hard to do a good job. It's a it's a very scary situation, but it's not about resources. You know, that's been very clear here in the U.S. It's not about I think that even in New York, we really saw what not taking early action. We paid for that very, mm -hmm. very steeply. And it's I don't think we've really come to terms with how many people have died in this country and continue to die in this country, you know, unnecessarily. And because of a really lack of coordinated leadership and, uh, you know, that I used to work in international development and in public health. And so just to see the situation escalate like this in the U S it's, it's very scary. Mm. And I think countries that I've lived, you know, like Ethiopia, like Nepal are actually with much fewer resources but taking it very seriously. Yeah. I'm interested in your perspective as a small business owner. Um, last, or kind of towards the, in the spring, I guess, here in Denver, there was, I, I lived downtown at the time and I'm all of a sudden I was, you know, reading or something probably. And I heard all this racket outside and horns and traffic. And I looked outside and there were, there was basically a vehicle protest of mostly Trump supporters, um, some QAnon conspiracy theorists. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but that was before it was big news, you know. Um, and they blocked up the streets for hours talking about protesting the shutdown. And, you know, it was easy to be critical of them, but I also understood the point, like, as small business owners or, you know, people who depend on a wage and especially in the US, you don't have right rights and access to healthcare and things like that. So how, what's your perspective as a small business owner? Do you think that, you know, it'd be wise to shut down or? We shut down before the city told us to. It, to me, there was no question that we needed to shut down. As I was very frustrated on the other hand that we were receiving very little guidance mm. uh, from the city government at the time. And there was a lot of fear in the air already. And definitely we had fewer customers than mm -hmm. we had had. Like, you know, people, it was, there was a lot of fear and rumors and talk. And I think earlier leadership would have helped. I, I don't think the question for me, it wasn't really about should we be open or should we be closed? From a public health perspective, we should be closed. But then what support would be provided? Right. Uh, not only to small business owners, but to people, you know, people who are, who uh, either couldn't go to work or shouldn't go to work or were being told to quarantine or, you know, uh, it was just so chaotic. And I, I understand that there were a lot of people who were doing their best, but I think that our city and our state leadership really didn't act on time. 
And when, when you go back and think about some of the statements that were made, some of the decisions that were made, you just, you have to cringe and say, oh my God, I can't believe. And a lot of things we didn't know and they didn't know. So it's not that, you know, but, but when you're responsible for a city of 8 million people, you, you should take that seriously. Um, And our decision was we closed before we were, before we had to, uh, part of it was a business decision, you know, where were the customers and part of it was, you know, safety for our staff, for ourselves, mm-hmm. uh, trying to just get organized in that time. That was the time when people were trying to buy groceries and make sure that they had supplies and schools were going to close. So what were we going to do with our kids? And there was a lot of that. So, but in some senses, we, we stayed open in a different way during the height of the pandemic here. We we have a very strong community and customer base here. And while we were shut down, they basically allowed us to continue in a sort of pay it forward way. So we were doing deliveries of coffee to essential workers. Mm. We were delivering to hospitals and post offices and sending coffee. And basically people were paying for that coffee. So that kept us going during the time that the shops were actually closed. And wow. then now we've reopened and, um, you know, it's takeout. It's a very different business, especially, as I said before, you know, when so much of our passion is about um, getting people together and having these conversations. And mm-hmm. that's not going to be possible for a while. Right. So um, for the coffee that was being brought to essential workers and whatnot, was that being paid for by those people or other people? Other Other people. Other people. People who were quarantining, were staying home, were feeling, you know, sort of like, well, what can we do to help, right? Right. And a very small thing. It's a a tiny thing. And that was at the time when our health workers didn't have gloves they didn't have masks they didn't you know there were nurses wearing garbage bags it was horrible i mean we were hearing sirens all day it was it was terrible so the a small little thing that people could do was send send some coffee send some pastries send you know that we're thinking of you my kids were writing thank you on the bags and you know there was a lot of sort of there was the clapping at 7 p.m there was like yeah these thanking so we were sort of part of that effort where you could send you could send your thanks in the form of some caffeine and some sugar. <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. <laughs> so yes, yeah, still a coffee house of the resistance. Yeah. So what do you think what do you think is kind of behind the lack of response? Because you mentioned countries with very little resources versus countries with many resources. Why do you think the US response has been so terrible is it a matter of values well it's sort of it's one of the very i think uniquely american things about it has been that the response has been so politicized Mm. it it hasn't been about the response it's it's been about what side are you on you know and i think that that it's so sad um and it's so i don't even have words to describe what it is but it's it's (laughs) That's a big difference from other countries, right? So where you say, well, science is science and health is health and the people who know about health and should lead the response. I think here it's been politicized, even certainly at the national level, it's been politicized here at the state level as well. I think that's been the shame of it right. because 
the, it's clear that the U.S. is not lacking expertise right. and is not lacking the scientists, the doctors, the health professionals. It's not lacking in the money. It's not lacking any of those things. So when it got so politicized, I think mm. that's, you know, how can how can a disease be left or right or <laughs> Democrat or Republican? It's a disease. And so I think that that has just been I don't that's part of for me, that's part of the unprecedented. Yeah, I guess because, you know, the economy is so fragile here, it became political when I think about those folks protesting the shutdown in Denver, in hindsight, I'm like, it's not the liberals that you're angry at or should be protesting. It's the fact that we can't shut down without support. Yeah. So it's like, we're so close, but so far. And yeah. it's like the, the division is so deep. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. I mean, and just from a, I mean, from a small business perspective, from my perspective, just being allowed to open doesn't mean that there is business. Right. You know, people aren't going to be lining up, at least not at our business. <laughs> so yeah. maybe some places, maybe, you know, you can be angry at the government for shutting you down. But honestly, in the middle of a pandemic, where are the customers? Right. And so for so many small businesses, I think either, you know, especially food, beverage, restaurants, like either the business model for now is just over or it's it's very different than before, right? So maybe restaurants that really didn't were much more about the in-person dining are suddenly doing delivery or, you know, us. I was never really interested in doing like the, you know, order ahead, mobile app stuff. But as soon as this happened, we needed that. That was yeah. what we had. So yeah. it's so so many like pivots and changes and you know there are a lot of there's a lot of decision making and shifting happening within small businesses and mm -hmm. like and i think everybody in this country has a right to be angry right about how the pandemic has developed here right uh, not only individuals have a right to be angry people that have lost loved ones have a right to be people are teachers <laughs> <laughs> teachers and school children and you know my kids have a right to be angry yeah uh, who's you know there's nobody taking any responsibility or accountability yeah so. lord help us in november um <laughs> you talk about your kiddos a lot in the book your girls and they seem so wonderfully curious and bright and I wanted to talk a little bit about motherhood and kind of what that looks like in this time too you mentioned a lot of like the tough questions that your girls ask and <laughs> it's like it's funny to read because you're on the subway and they're asking what's fascism what you know um I love that how's that going I mean you do talk a little bit about the rage of motherhood too, which I think is important to talk about because it's not all, it's not easy. Not, I mean, I don't have any of my own children. I have my students, but I know it's not easy. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's, you know, honestly, it's the best and the worst. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's the best and the worst of every day. It's, um, you know, they're, yeah, they're delicious. They're like <laughs> these amazing human beings. And I told my older daughter recently, she's 10. Mm -hmm. I told her that I trust her more than I trust most political leaders in this country. And I would trust her to make decisions, better decisions. 
And I meant it, you know, and I think that, yeah, somebody I follow on Twitter this morning, I had, I had this exchange, it really hit me. She said, you know, that in the middle of all of this, her sort of act of revolution or her, her resistance was putting all the love and creativity and joy into her children mm. and, and, and creating this sort of next, these people, these amazing people. And, you know, it's a huge and awesome responsibility. And it's also exhausting. I write a little bit in my book about, you know, coming to this neighborhood and in a way, in the beginning, feeling so alone, like, you know, both Elias and I grew up in societies where there's extended families, there's always like child raising is sort of a communal activity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the parents aren't just left to do it. But then I found here in our neighborhood that it was also a communal activity, you know, in the playgrounds and in the the support group among parents. And it was it just looked different. It was a different structure, but it was here as well. And Honestly, uh, without the help of so many other parents, I don't know how we would have started our business. Our our daughter was still very young at the time. Yeah. So, you know, I think one of the dilemmas with parenting in this in the last four years for me has been about how much to protect them and how much to expose them and how much to, you know, how much is too much of a burden versus how much of it is just uh, wrong to shield them from. Right. And that's something that, you know, I think each family does differently, but it's been like a really active question in my own mind of like how to explain things, how to have enough of that sort of an unencumbered childhood <laughs> and and yet be real about what's happening around them so yeah. that they're prepared and but no, kids are kids are amazing how they process things, what they what they see, what they learn, all of that. And so in the current moment, a lot of our, it's an active part of our thinking right now with schools and what's going to happen with the kids and, you know, as, as it is for you, just for a lot of families right now. Yeah. I know you guys were, you share towards the end of the book that you were wrestling for a bit with, maybe we should just leave. Maybe we should move out of the country. And I've thought about that for myself as well. I have I had the opportunity before everybody shut us out um, <laughs> to get dual citizenship in Italy. But there's a lot of, you know, opinions about that. Do you go because it's just so unbearable and you don't want to be, like you said, um, almost enabling it with your tax dollars and everything else. But you also don't want to leave because, you know, it's our struggle too. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think, you know, there was a time when before the last election, when there were a lot of people, I would hear people say, oh, you know, well, if he gets elected, I'm going to go to Canada. Right. And uh, I used to get really irritated by that, <laughs> honestly, because I would be like, well, so who's going to stay? And right. who are you leaving behind? And who, like, do you have no responsibility for the people you're leaving? You know, like who's going to fight? Who's going to change this thing? And, but honestly, you know, I, I understand. I mean, at this stage, like, you know, people have to do also what's right for them, for their families. And I, I don't think there was like a mass movement leaving the U S after the last election. I don't think there will be after the next one either, but, but it is a question about sort of how the U S is, is seen in the world. You know, I see a lot of articles about, you know, less international students choosing to come here less, 
um, first time business invent investors uh, choosing to come here, the idea of America and how that's changing. And this mm -hmm. idea of America, which maybe it never was, but this, the idea of it and how that is changing and, and how do we, but I mean, for now we are here and, you know, we are doing the work every day and we're raising our kids and we're, you know, continuing with our business and our community. So yeah, I mean, you know, never say never, I guess. <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah. So um, let's kind of round it out. I, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about your relationship to hope right now as we approach the next election. I, for one, am scared to hope <laughs> just because of what, you know, the last four years has brought. Um, are you hopeful? You said the glass is always half full for you, but what are you feeling about it? I, I honestly, I feel the hope that I found has been not so much on the national level, but mm -hmm. at the state level, at the city level, all over this country, there's a lot of hope, I think. And uh, just recently in the in New York, we've had a set of elections where people have been elected into office at the assembly level, at the city count, you know, we're, we will have city council elections, but this was for the state Senate and the assembly. And that's where real, like a lot of real changes happen. So I think that's where my focus and energy has been and where I do see signs mm -hmm. of hope. Mm -hmm. At the national level, you know, it's, it's a big question mark for mm -hmm. me. I don't know. I, you know, I don't know what anybody says, but I have no idea what's going to happen. <laughs> and I, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, and the people who think no, by doing all this analysis, I'm not sure if I believe them. So I guess just, yeah, I think my focus right now is where at least for hope and optimism is much more on, on local. Okay. Yeah. Local, local actions local yeah. and and those make a big difference yeah i i agree i agree about the big question mark too it's like, <laughs> i'm just gonna let it come and see what happens of course i'm gonna vote but um so yeah my belief and part of the reason i mean the reason probably that i do this podcast is that i think that stories have the power to unite us so i was wondering just as a final question if a listener were to tune in that was maybe, you know, farther to the right of the political spectrum, what what would you want them to know about people who are immigrants? I think the main thing for me is that people who are immigrants are people. Mm. And most most people that live in America have a very strong connection to immigration and immigrants in their own families. If you look at it honestly, then most people's family histories are stories are of immigration, unless you happen to be uh, Native American or African American, in which case, you know, those are two very specifically different American stories. But the rest of people are have come from somewhere else and their family members have known that journey mm -hmm. and have known what it is to start a new home for oneself, to have a hope for a better future for themselves and their kids and taken big risks to do that, you know, leaving, leaving behind a lot of love mm. in other places. And so, you know, I think that I, I do, I wish that people could look be, a little bit beyond the labels of 
right wing or a left wing or a Democrat or Republican. And I, I think that there would be a lot more that we could share in common if we actually looked at what is it we want? What kind of a world do we want to live in? What what do we want for our families, right? Like what what are the actual specific tangible things? Right. Like a good school right. or good health care or, you know, dental care. <laughs> so <laughs> those basic things that I think most people want. Somehow like that gets so lost yeah. in in all the very loud talking. <sighs> Thank you so much. This is an absolute honor to talk with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to show your support again, please head over to patreon.com slash situation and story, where for as little as seven bucks a month, you can enjoy bonus content of authors reading from their books. Until next time, 